please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Thomas Barclay. Hi, my name's Tom Barclay, and I guess the speaker's, the, the, the microphone's working okay? That's good. Um, so I am based at NASA's Ames Research Center. It's about 400 miles north of here in Silicon Valley, in, in Mountain View, where we're actually next door to Google. So, um, so it's, it's a good place to be, so I haven't had to come far today. Um, so I work on NASA's Kepler mission. So the Kepler mission is, is an overriding mission that used the spacecraft called Kepler to solve one overriding question, and that what fraction of stars in our galaxy harbor potentially habitable Earth-sized planets? So by the end of this talk, I want you to understand how we find planets, what, potentially, what makes a planet potentially habitable, and why this is an interesting question. Why you should care about why, whether there are potentially habitable planets out there and how common they are and what they look like and, and what we know about them and what we don't know about them. That's perhaps the most important question and the most important thing right now. So how do we detect planets using Kepler? We use the transit technique. There are several ways to detect a, detect a planet and the transit technique is just one of them. The way this technique works is when a planet passes in front of a star, it blocks a small amount of light. So here in this movie here, you can see uh, the, the, the brightness as a function of time changing when a planet passes in front of a star. See the planet move into what we call transit, it blocking some of the light. The star appears to get dimmer. Now remember here, all we see as a star is a point in the sky. We don't see this, this full disk we're seeing here. But this is what's happening. You're blocking a small fraction of the light. The star appears to get dimmer. And this characteristic dimming tells us about the size of the planet. It also tells us how far away from the, planet, from the star the planet is. And by the frequency of how often these happen, that tells us about the year of the planet. So we're learning all these things just from this small dip. So as you might imagine, stars are very big, and planets, well, are relatively small compared to a star. Here in the image here, I show a, a typical star. This, this could be the sun, and the size of Jupiter. So Jupiter has about a tenth the radius of the sun, so about a hundredth of the area. So the amount of brightness dimming that occurs when Jupiter pa would pass in front of the sun, or a Jupiter-sized planet would pass in front of a st another star, a sun-like star, would be about 1%, because it's one part in 100 the area of the star. So you can see this pretty clearly here. This is a very easy to see. You can see where Jupiter is. Now let's try and spot the Earth. Can you see the Earth there? That's the size of the Earth. The Earth has um, about a hundredth of the radius of the sun, but that equates to a, a dip in brightness when it passes in front of the star of 100 parts in every million. Now, when you also consider not only is it a tiny dip like that, but it occurs once every 365 days and lasts only 12 hours. So the amount of time it's in transit is very small. So you keep having to look at this thing, hoping you find it at the right time, you find this transit to find this event. It's an extremely challenging measurement. But the depth of this dip, as I said, tells you about the size, and the frequency tells you the planet's year. 
And so by knowing the planet's year, you can work out how much energy that planet is receiving from its star, and you can start to say something about the temperature of that planet, or at least how, uh, how, what the temperature would be like if you could understand more about the atmosphere. It's beginning our investigation of planets, beginning to understand where interesting planets lie. So one of the things about the transit technique that makes it different from other methods of detecting planets is that because the planet needs to pass in front of the star, the planet's plane, its orbit, has to be very precisely lined up with our line of sight. So if you think about this, you think the planet's orbits in a disk, it has to be, we have to be looking edge on to see this transit. So for all the planets out there, if we imagine every star had an Earth-like planet, only one in 200 would we see transit. So we have to look at an incredibly large number of stars to find a small number of planets, which is already a fabulously difficult measurement to make. So you take this one transit lasting 12 hours every 365 days, and then you multiply that by 200, well, only one in 200 do we see. We get to very, uh, very large numbers. So we need to look at lots of stars. So we designed the Kepler spacecraft, with the instruments on it, with this challenging goal in mind. Here you see the Kepler CCD. This is a, a CCD is a charge couple device. It's how your digital cameras work. The, the science, the, the, the engineering for digital cameras is, is very much the same as the way we, we put things into space, the way we take images. This is a lot larger than your digital camera, as you can see, but it's the same, same science. This is a 100 megapixel camera. So this looks at an area of the sky roughly the size of your fist if you hold it out. We observe about 150,000 stars simultaneously using this, this camera. And you can see on the right the Kepler spacecraft here with a person working on it. This was shortly before it went into launch uh, in 2009. As I said, this is an extremely challenging measurement to make. It's about the most challenging measurement we've ever made using cameras. This is the most we call this photometry because you're measuring light photo and meter. Uh, it's about the most precise photometer we've ever built. Because uh, one of the things that the photometers, the way they work, the way they measure light, they're very sensitive to temperature. So basically, you want to keep the same temperature all the time. One of the problems of being near the Earth is that the sun's there, and if you're going around the Earth, you're going in and out of the sun. Or even if you can keep the same amount of sunlight, you have different amounts of reflection from, from the Earth happening all the time. You have different cloud cover. You're changing temperature all the time if you're on the Earth or even if you're around the Earth. It's very hard to keep the same temperature all the time for this large instrument. You've also got lots of the atmosphere if you're on the ground. It's very, very difficult. So what we want to do is we want to go to space and we want to go far away from the Earth. We want to go to a, a stable environment where it's always the same temperature. So this means we go into an orbit that follows the Earth round, but we're behind the Earth. The spacecraft's actually about half the distance from the Earth to the Sun, away from Earth right now. And the reason you're there is just is it's always the same temperature all the time. Nothing changes. That means you don't have focus changes. If you think about the way focus works, it, it, it depends on, on the distance between the parts in your, your camera or the parts in your telescope. But if you're changing temperature, you're slightly changing the distances between these things. You have flexure. 
So by, going, by taking the same temperature, you don't have these issues, you don't have these problems, you can keep your precise photometry. The other thing I touched upon a little bit earlier was when I talked about uh, the amount of time you see the planet in transit. So one of the things of Earth-like planets being 365 days, you need to observe it several times to see these multiple transits so you know the planet's year, you know how much energy it's receiving from the star. So that means looking at the same point in the sky all the time, continuously for years. So that's what we're doing, and that's what we did from 2009 to 2013. We looked at this one patch in the sky, in the northern sky here, in the constellation of Cygnus, simultaneously for four years without changing. You can see the sky here, here's the Milky Way, and that, that CCD camera, which you saw the person in front of, projected onto the sky. These are how these, 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 these CCDs map to the sky. Uh, you can see on the right here uh, an image showing all, all that data, just a simple snapshot taken in time from our camera. And one of the things in the bottom left here, which you extremely rarely see, no one shows this normally when we talk about Kepler data, is what we actually take, an image. And if you look, these look like blurry blobs. These blurry blobs uh, of, of, of large you know, regions with very big pixels are the, these are the stars. So Hubble shows pictures all the time. They're beautiful things. We don't show pictures very often because they look like that. They're, <laughs> they're, they're not pretty. But they are extremely powerful. If you keep that star in exactly the same position on the same pixels the entire time, you can very precisely measure how that star changes in brightness over a function of time. And we turn those pixels into planets. So you measure that brightness of that star all the time. You keep measuring it. And you can see, just like the cartoon uh, movie I showed earlier, this is real data from a planet here. And you see this dip in brightness as the, the planet goes in front of the star. This is actually the first rocky planet ever detected outside of our own solar system here. And you can see the scale here. You know, it's fractions of a percent dip in brightness. So the red line is, is, is kind of a, a model. It's, it's, a, it's, it's just a mathematical model explaining what's, what's going on. But the white points are the observed data. That's actually what we, thought, what we took from the spacecraft. We said, how bright is the planet at this, or the star at this time? Uh, we've overlaid lots and lots and lots of transits over, over the same time. Because this, we, with one transit, you wouldn't see it. But with lots, it comes out of the noise. You see it quite clearly. So planets, pixels. Measuring brightness, discovering beautiful planets at the bottom right here. This is more like the pictures we actually show to the public. Much more often, they're artist uh, conceptions. Um, we, 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 don't show, uh, we need to have artists make beautiful images or people to use our imagination a lot more. So exoplanets, so that's planets orbiting stars other than the sun, is an extremely new field. The first planet was probably found in about 1988, 1989. It wasn't quite recognized as such. In the first paper, they said it could be a planet, 
but it's extremely unlikely. No one's ever discovered planets around other stars. Maybe it's just a noisy star. So they talked themselves out of one of the biggest discoveries uh, in, in recent memory. And so it, was, it took another six years for someone to have the confidence to say, actually, I, it is a, is a planet. So, so this, this paper is fascinating. I happen to know the, the, the professor who was a colleague of the authors who said, you don't want to claim this as a planet because you'll ruin your career, you'll embarrass yourself. That was... Uh, yeah, an unfortunate statement. So this, this Canadian team isn't remembered for it, but the Canadian team did, did, did find the first exoplanet. Um, so here we show the, 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 the size relative to Earth, with Earth 1 here along this, this, this y-axis. And uh, increasing to the right, you see the orbital period. That's, that's the number of days. So the Earth here would be at 365 days, that's our year, and it's at one, it's one Earth radius. And you see right at the top there, that first exoplanet, it's about twice the size, it's about 20 uh, Earth, Earth radii, it's very, very, very large, a very large planet, much bigger than, maybe twice the size of Jupiter. Uh, so here was where Jupiter would be, Jupiter's further out than Earth, it's also much larger, it's 11 Earth radius. So this is what the, the field of exoplanets was like uh, from 1995 when the first two confirmed planets that people stood behind and they, they backed. They were published by a Swiss group uh, in, in, and a group from Berkeley or uh, San Francisco State maybe at the time uh, working on that. Um, you can see here the, the blue points here are, are most of the first planets. The blue points were discovered using the radial velocity technique, a technique that's been very powerful in finding many of the planets we found up to this date. You look at the, uh, at the planet moving around the star, the star wobbles, and you, you can measure the, the weight of the planet, the mass of the planet, by how much it wobbles. And that's not the technique we use to detect the planets. Um, they're actually really interesting. They're very complementary techniques. One tells you how much the planet weighs. The other one tells you how big the planet is. If you can tell them both, you actually start to understand something about composition. So they're, they're very complementary techniques, but they're very different detection techniques and uh, different teams working on them. The, the transiting planets here, you see, are, are in pink, and they're a very different population. They're the hot Jupiters, typically. These are the Jupiter-sized planets orbiting just a few days from their stars. This was a huge surprise to everyone when we found these. And in fact, we'd have discovered exoplanets much many years before that if we'd known just where to look. But they, these are the first ones. So you can see there's a smattering of planets up to about 2009. So before we launched Kepler, there were a few dozens, maybe a few hundred planets, most of them very large, many of the transiting planets close in, most of the radial velocity planets a bit further out. So what this, 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 this image says to me is that there aren't any Earth-sized planets and there aren't any planets on very long orbital periods like Earth, any small planets out there. So one of the questions you could simply raise was maybe Earth is extremely rare. Maybe there aren't rocky planets out there. Maybe it's not natural to have rocky planets. It just wasn't known at this time because you weren't sensitive to them. So the reason there aren't any Earth-like things here is because they weren't sensitive, not because they didn't exist, but we didn't know. So this is what happens when you include Kepler's data from, two, from the four years of the Kepler mission. Bang. This is for roughly three or 4,000 uh, planets found with the Kepler data. These are strictly planet candidates rather than planets, but uh, we think there's at least 90% of them are real planets. 
Um, there's a lot of work to follow it up to say it's a real planet, but the, there's a very high, high uh, rate there of real planets. And you can see suddenly not only are there Earth-sized planets, and they appear to be common, but there's a huge number of planets between one and four Earth radius. Four Earth radius here is the size of Neptune. So the most common planets we find, don't, we don't have our own solar system. This actually presents a huge number of challenges to us because, well, we can model planets we end up having our own solar system. You know, we have two Earth-sized planets. We have Earth and Venus. We know what they're both made of, and we can kind of understand how they form their history. We have two uh, ice giants, Neptune and Uranus. We can kind of understand these. What the heck is a two-Earth radius planet made of? We don't know. We, we, we simply don't know. Or we didn't up to this point. We still know very little about these planets. So it, it was a huge surprise that the, all the planets we find are in this region. But to touch on what I mentioned earlier, the goal of the Kepler mission is to look at the frequency of Earth-sized planets orbiting potentially, in the potentially habitable regions of their stars. So what's a potentially habitable region? Well, we come up with this, this, this phrase known as the habitable zone. The habitable zone is, is, a, is a concept that isn't meant to say something is definitely habitable. It's meant to say that it's something, somewhere that's very interesting to look. It's a place at a distance from their star receiving the right amount of energy that makes it similar to Earth. We base all of this on being similar to Earth. Why is that? Well, that's because we know of one place in the universe with life. So we extrapolate from that one data point to an entire galaxy, and that's where we look. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not what you do, and I imagine if we were to find life somewhere else, we'd probably find that some of it's nothing like Earth. Your second data point often doesn't correlate with your first. But this is, this is what we have, and this is what we're working with, so we look for places that remind us of home. So one thing about life on Earth, every single part of life on Earth, at some point in its history, in its, its evolution, in its, in, its, in, in its life, requires liquid water. Even things that are in the desert and require just a few drops of water every few dozens of years still require some liquid water in some, at some point during its life. So we define this habitable zone as planets that have liquid water on the surface. So if you're too hot, you boil off your liquid water, you turn into a Venus-like world. So we know what happens if you're too hot, you turn into Venus. Well, maybe that doesn't always happen, but the, one, the other data point we have is Venus, and we don't want to live there. <laughs> uh, if you're too cold, well, you probably turn into a snowball world, you, you freeze out all this, all this water. Um, it's, it's, it, that's a, a more difficult concept to, to, to think about habitability. I mean, you could imagine life under oceans, under ice. Um, we're thinking of Europa and our own solar system as being a good, a good part. But finding life underneath giant ice caps is going to be extremely challenging. If we want to go and find places that are good places to look for life, we want to look for places with water on the surface. So this is the region we call the habitable zone. It's not too hot and it's not too cold. But there's something else that makes Earth special. It's not just its temperature. It's also its size. So these are the sizes of, of Mars, Earth, and Jupiter. So Jupiter is a gas world. It doesn't have a solid surface. 
And while there may be some exotic life going on in Jupiter or Jupiter-like worlds, it's not going to be anything like us. And because we're very, um, you know, we think about ourselves too much, perhaps, we only want to look for life that's like us. Um, it's, it's easier to think about how we look for life like us than, than, than something we've never seen before. So we want to find something with a solid surface, a rocky surface, with potentially thin oceans, like our own oceans. Um, and that precludes these giant planets. If you're looking at two, uh, go smaller on the opposite side of things, that takes us to Mars. Now Mars, while cooler than the Earth, you know, it receives much less energy than the Earth. If it was bigger, it would be able to retain large oceans. And there's evidence that it did have water at some point on its, on its surface. But it's simply too small to retain a good atmosphere, to blanket the planet, to, to keep it warm, to have a greenhouse effect. So Mars has lost most of its atmosphere because of its size. So as well as being not too hot and not too cold, you can't be too big and you can't be too small. So we're closing down this parameter space of where we think is a good place to look and a good place to perhaps uh, spend our energy, spend our money and effort in the next 100 years to come. And that's to look in the habitable zone. So up to this point, we've made some really nice progress uh, towards uh, looking at the habitable zone. We're finding planets that fulfill some of the criteria, but not others. Uh, I think this was 2012. So just two years ago, we found the first ever planet that was the size of the Earth. It was much too hot, but it was 1.0 times the size of Earth. I think uh, and also in 2012, we found planets that, that received the right amount of energy from their star, and they weren't giant Jupiter-like worlds, uh, such as 20, Kepler-22b here. Uh, but this one's about two and a half times the size of the Earth. It probably doesn't have a rocky surface. It probably is more like a smaller version of Neptune. But this receives the right amount of energy. The other one receives the right amount of, is the right size. So we're getting closer. And so in um, April of this year, we announced the first planet is the, both the right size and the right distance from its star to place it in the habitable zone. This is the first Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone of another star. This planet is known as Kepler-186f. So you can see here, there's the star. Uh, the planet is the, the, here, and the star with four inner planets orbiting, and Kepler-186f is the outer planet of five known planets in this star system. This is an artist's concept. Um, we worked quite hard to make it look a little bit Earth-like, but not too Earth-like. Uh, there was, there was some, some, a lot of thought went into how, how, do, you, how do you actually make a planet that, that will evoke Earth, will make people think about, uh, you know, people want images. We don't make images. So how do you make an image that, that, that but it doesn't lie and you don't, you don't take things too far? So we, we thought, well, maybe, maybe there's, uh, we take the right amount, the right color of the star, we take the, the, the uh, ice caps here, which, which will be white, but the clouds, which are going to be more orangey uh, for, the, for the slightly cooler star that this is. Um, so this is, this is our Arsis concept. So what we can do here is we can now say that planets that are the size of Earth and the habitable zones do exist. For the first time, we can say that perhaps Earth isn't so special. There are other places that look like Earth out there. So th this is actually, this, isn't, this is the only image I show from a real paper. This is from our paper in earlier in this year. And you can see here at the bottom left here, 
what the data looks like. This is the transit data, and you see in the bottom here this nice, nice dip, this very clear dip that shows this transit of a 1.1 Earth radius planet, just 10% bigger than the Earth, orbiting its star every 130 days. Now, I'll touch upon that later in the talk, but that 130 days is, is, is key here because you're probably saying to yourself, wait, 130 days is very close in. You know, that's, that's inwards of uh, even uh, Venus. It's probably a very hot planet. But actually, uh, when you start to consider the star, things get, things get more complicated but very different. So this is a, a, a movie, uh, a top-down of the system. You see the star in the middle. You see the four inner planets. And these, these, uh, these lines here show you a little about, a bit about these planets. So we, we fly through these planets here. All these planets are, are between 1 and 1.5, the radius of Earth. They're all probably rocky planets. They're all very small. But this is the planet we're most interested in. It orbits uh, 130 days uh, orbital period. And it receives about a third of the energy that Earth receives from the sun. So significantly less energy than Earth receives from the sun. But it still falls within this region called the habitable zone. So we know the size and we know how much energy it receives, but there's so much we don't know. We know it's probably rocky. It's very difficult to make a planet that's the size of Earth that isn't rocky. If you had a lot of gas there, you lose it. We simply don't have the mass to hold on to lots of hydrogen and helium. So we're probably not like a, a, a Neptune or a Jupiter-like world. But there's a huge amount of parameter space uh, when you say isn't, uh, isn't gassy. So the, the three things that kind of our planet's made up of mostly is iron, rock, and ice. Iron is extremely dense, very heavy. Rock is what we have on our surface, and, and ice, ice and water uh, on the surface, and they're much, much denser. So all we can say is that it's, it's made up of some combination of these three. It's very unlikely to be all iron or very unlikely to be all ice, but it's probably somewhere in this regime. It's, but we, where it is, we don't know. We don't know how much it weighs. We haven't been able to measure its mass. We just know its size. And therefore, we don't know its composition well. So there are limitations here. There's a lot we don't know. This is really at the cutting edge right now. So Earth's the one planet we know has life. And now we know another planet's the size of Earth. So... This planet orbits a star that isn't like the sun. It's not a sun-like star. Here we show the sun with Earth passing through it. This, these are, these, these are uh, images that are scale here. And on the right, we show this planet, this star, Kepler-186. That's the name of the star. With the planet, which is known as Kepler-186f, orbiting around it. The F here comes because uh, the innermost planet is B, followed by C, D, E, and the fifth is F. So the, planet's, the star's about half the size of our sun. This is known as an M star, an M dwarf, or a red dwarf. You may have heard of these there. So it's significantly cooler. It's much, much less luminous. It's, it's only 5% as luminous as our own star. But that gives us a number of advantages. See, when a planet the size of Earth passes in front of the sun, you see this tiny, tiny dip. 
but you have the same planet pass in front of a, a smaller star, you see a much deeper dip. Because remember here, a transit is the, uh, area, uh, is the ratio of areas. So you shrink the size by half, you shrink the, the, the area by a factor of four, you have a four times deeper dip. So this takes this signal that's extremely hard to see and makes it four times easier to see. So finding planets around smaller stars like this is much, much easier. And that's why the first Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone of another star is around one of these cooler stars. That's why it's the first one. There's another reason, not just the size of the star. And that's also that the, because the, the smaller a star is, the cooler a star is, the less luminous it is. So that means this habitable zone is much closer in for these cooler stars. So for sun-like stars, the habitable zone starts is roughly from the orbit of Mars to the orbit of Earth. For the cooler stars, you can have it much, much closer. As much, so in this case, this planet here, is, this is the, the Kepler-186 system uh, on the top. And in the bottom here, you see our solar system. So the four inner planets here, uh, B, C, D, and E, and then Kepler-186f orbiting in the green region, the habitable zone. But this habitable zone uh, actually falls, the orbit of this actually falls inwards of the orbit of Mercury. So Mercury is this extremely uh, hot, hostile world in our own solar system. But put Mercury in this other solar system, and it would actually receive you know, uh, less energy than Earth receives from the sun. So you can see Earth here roughly in the middle of the habitable zone here. Kepler-186 is near the edge, as I mentioned. Uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a cooler world than, than Earth is. This is just another way of looking at this. This is the, the temperature of the stars along the y-axis here and the distance of the stars. You see Earth orbiting a, a 5,700 Kelvin star. That's the sun. Uh, one AU. An AU is the distance between the Earth and the sun. Which is, if you make a distance scale that has one for the Earth, it makes everything we do relative to the Earth. It makes things easier. So our interesting planet is here is just a third of the distance between the Earth and the sun yet it receives less energy. You can see these stars are extremely different from our own star. But part of them being extremely different and extremely smaller makes, thing, makes them very exciting. Much like, you know, if you think of a beach, you see lots of smaller grains of sand and then very small, large rocks and boulders. It's the same a little bit for stars. Small stars are much, much more common than more massive stars. If we take our galaxy, seven out of every ten stars in our galaxy is one of these cool M stars, these red dwarfs. And most of our nearest neighbors are M dwarfs. If you look up into the sky, you go in your backyard, perhaps not in this area, but maybe in a darker site, and you look into the sky, you'll see many stars. You won't see any M dwarfs because they're not luminous enough for us to see with our own eyes. We simply don't see them. But actually, they're everywhere. They're all, they're all around us. Most of our neighbors are these cool stars that we can't see. So there are 100, mil 100 billion stars in our galaxy. 70% of them are M stars. So what this tells us that is of all the planets out there, most planets will orbit M stars. If there's going to be life out there, and it's ubiquitous, most alien life out there is probably orbiting these cooler stars. So trying to understand these planets and look for interesting planets orbiting these cooler stars isn't too bad a place to, to look and to spend our energies. 
In fact, NASA is launching a mission with one of its main goals is to find planets orbiting these cool stars nearby, our nearest neighbours. It's that important. But just because a planet is in the habitable zone of one of these stars, or any star, it doesn't make it habitable. It's very important that we understand our limitations. We, it's important we don't get across the, the idea that we know what this planet's like, that we know about its atmosphere, we know that you know, it has flowing oceans and rivers and continents. We know very little about this planet other than its size and its distance from the star. I've tried not to mention too much about its temperature. We know how much energy it receives, but we don't know what temperature the planet is at its surface. And the reason we don't know that is because we know nothing of the planet's atmosphere. If we didn't have an atmosphere, we'd be much colder than we are. It would be a very unpleasant, hostile world, and I don't think anyone would want to live there. Our planet blankets us. It keeps the energy in. It keeps us warm. Without an atmosphere, this planet would be much colder. It wouldn't be habitable. So the next step is really to try and understand whether these planets have atmospheres and what the atmospheres are made up of are they like our own? That's, that's the next step, that's the next decade or two decades worth of research is to understand atmospheres. But right now, we really don't understand that. There's a NASA mission called James Webb coming in a few years' time. And one of its primary goals, as far as exoplanet research goes, is to really try and understand atmospheres of planets like this one, perhaps nearby, perhaps brighter than, than, than Kepler-186. But we really are spending a huge amount of effort and, and tax dollars on understanding atmospheres. But right now, we don't know any atmospheres of, about, much about atmospheres of rocky planets. One thing we do know is the light coming from these M stars is much, much different from the sun. It's much redder. And that, that changes how the, the, it interacts with the planet. So if it did have an atmosphere and there was life on this planet, it would perceive the world very differently from how we perceive it. Because much of the light coming from this star is in the infrared regime. <coughs> so perhaps the creatures on this world would see these dogs like this rather than how we see them in the visible spectrum. Um, it would be, it'd be very different, but also photosynthesis would be very different. Chlorophyll is what we use, uh, what planets on, plants on our uh, planet use to create their energy. This probably wouldn't be a good way for alien worlds to, uh, alien plants to create their energy. They wouldn't be using chlorophyll. These plants just, these planets just, uh, stars just don't emit in the green region. There isn't the energy coming for chlorophyll to work, uh, or they'd be much slower. But there are, there's a lot of active research going on in the field known as astrobiology, trying to say, well, what, if we, what would it be like on these planets? Are there the right, uh, the right chemicals to, to perform photosynthesis in a different way? Could you have plants? It's a very exciting area to try and understand and try to model of how, the, how this works, um, of how these planet, planets are very different from our own. So if you stood on this planet, Kepler-186f, how would you perceive the world? Or how would your stars look? 
Here's the sun. This is the brightness of the sun, uh, uh, how it would look on, on our planet. If we take uh, a, a cooler star, these cooler stars would look more orange than red. Not significantly so. Sometimes people talk about red dwarfs as being very red. Actually, they're not. most of them aren't especially red. They're more of a, uh, a white-orange color. Um, so you'd, you'd perceive the, 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 planet to be, the star to be a, a white-orange color. And at midday on this planet, because the star is further away, it would be dimmer. So midday on this planet would be about the illumination that we get for, uh, for at, at, at about two hours before sunset. So we know this. We do know what it would look like, the, star, the stars on this world and the planet on this world. And perhaps just before sunset, you could capture a glimpse of the, the inner four planets, or at least one of the inner four planets, uh, as we do with Venus, uh, our, our evening star. So the first transiting exoplanets were found using the Hubble Space Telescope. This really has been the most important mission that NASA's launched, uh, at least as far as um, non-man-based uh, research projects. Hubble has changed everything, including exoplanets, the first transiting exoplanet, the first time we knew the size of an exoplanet. The next revolution came with the mission I've been talking about, the mission I've been working on for the last four years, the Kepler Space Telescope. Unfortunately, as many, many of you might know, Kepler stopped its primary mission in 2013. Um, after four years, uh, we lost the second of four reaction wheels. So a reaction wheel is how you point a spacecraft. Uh, you need to control uh, three axes of motion to stop yourself rolling and tumbling in space. Reaction wheels are just big wheels you spin and you, you hold yourself stiff. The angle of momentum keeps you pointing in one place. Two of them have failed, so we can only control the spacecraft in two axes. That means one of them's free to spin and turn. We developed a way to use the sun as the third axis, as the third wheel to control our motion, so we regained good pointing again. And Kepler is back observing the sky, and it has been for the last six months or so, running a mission we've called K2. Um, uh, what, there, there are several explanations of why we called it K2. One is it's, well, it's like Kepler and it has two wheels, or perhaps two comes from the fact that it's the, the second version of Kepler. But the, the definition I like better is the, the idea that, you know, uh, Everest is the most popular uh, mountain out there, the most popular one to climb, but hundreds of people have climbed Everest. Only a handful have climbed K2. K2's, <laughs> while not as high, is much, much more challenging so uh, that's, that's, that's the definition of K2 I like the best. So you'll be seeing results come out uh, probably in January, but certainly in next, much of next year from the K2 mission as Kepler finds more planets again. Um, it's a very different mission looking, looking in several different fields, uh, looking for uh, rocky planets orbiting nearby stars, trying to measure their composition, looking, trying to measure their, what they're made of perhaps. After that comes the TESS mission. That's ne uh, it's a small mission, uh, small in NASA terms of $300 million, uh, looking for planets, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, orbiting these cooler stars, planets in our backyard, our nearest neighbors. When I showed how Kepler works, Kepler looks into a small, single patch of the sky and looks in the same spot the whole time. That's how it worked. 
But that meant that most of the stars you look at are far away because there aren't that many nearby stars and they're spread out. You need to look at the whole sky to find our nearest neighbors. So that's what's what TESS is going to do. It's going to change uh, the idea from, from what Kepler did, from looking at one part of the sky to looking at all the sky. What Kepler told us is there's planets everywhere. The image with the uh, yellow dots just showed how many planets there are. Probably most stars have planets out there. So now we know there are most stars have planets, we can go and look at a given star and say, well, let's find the planet it has around it. And that's what TESS is going to do. It's using the same transit technique, so it still has to look at a lot of stars. But it's going to find a huge number of planets orbiting nearby stars. And that's very exciting, because the nearer you are to us, the easier you are to follow up. And that's just what James Webb is going to do for exoplanet research. It's going to tell us about the atmospheres of these nearest stars that Kepler finds, that, 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 sorry, that Tess finds. So you, want to, you, you measure in the infrared and you look, does this planet have methane or water in its, in, in its spectrum? That's really profound and really exciting, and I think the next decade is going to be absolutely wonderful. And then the future of exoplanets is rosy. The, this is one of the hot topics in science, and it's going to continue to be for the next, next few years, I expect, uh, as NASA spends a lot of its resources on exoplanet research. So there's a lot more to come, a lot more from actually imaging planets. That's where we, I expect we're going in the next, next few decades. So in summary, Kepler-186f is the first validated Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone of another star. We now know they exist. It's the right size, just about Earth's size, and it's the right distance from its star, that if it had an atmosphere like Earth, it could host liquid water at its surface. So it says there are planets out there that remind us of home. Kepler-186f orbits a star that's cooler than our sun. So one of the things that a lot of journalists ask, well, is this Earth's twin? Well, not quite, but it, 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 while it might have similar characteristics, it's got a very different parent, so perhaps it's an Earth's cousin. <laughs> um, these stars are much more abundant than our own types of stars. There are nearest neighbors that are everywhere, so it's exciting to know that these have these small rocky planets around them. And Kepler, planets like this one would be our first opportunity to search for life outside of our own solar system as we look for the atmospheres of other planets. And because people have asked about this in the past a lot, uh, this is the, the Allen array from SETI. And yes, SETI has observed Kepler-186f at some length. And there have been no uh, signals yet, but they are planned to keep looking. And I'm sure they'll let you know if they hear from ET. So with that, I'll, uh, I'll, 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 I'll close and let you ask questions. <laughs>